Welcome to People's Church Podcast. We're on a series called Perspective. I'm going to jump right in for time's sake for you. Uh, there is always a larger goal is part four. Always a larger goal. Goals are an interesting thing. I went to a couple of hockey games yesterday, believe it or not. So I went to one in the morning and I watched a couple of young men from the church play for the Wembley Wildcats and they played great. Had a tough loss in overtime, but they played great Blake and uh, Merrick. And uh, then I went last night to the Junior Storm game, which my nephew and uh, plays on, and uh, uh, also Ryder Johnson plays on, and so I was watched that. They cleaned up on Fort Saskatchewan, five to one, yay. Uh, Oilers, uh, I didn't watch them. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Let them get back on a streak, whatever. You know, uh, goals, goals. Hitting the net in life, scoring the goals, win the game. Um, it's a part of how we go at just about everything in life. Believe it or not, you all are goal-driven in one way, shape, or form. And the life you have right now was shaped by the goals that you have set. Uh, we're going to dive a little deeper than just maybe the goals that you have set. Because often what we're setting is the obvious things in life. We have the, the goals of, well, we're going to start our own business, or we're going to um, get married, or we're going to have a family, or you set goals that are pretty common, and we all share in those goals. I want to dive a little deeper on it. In the book of Philippians, which we've been using as a backdrop to some of this particular series on perspective. It's an interesting book because Paul is writing it uh, from a place in prison. He's not in a comfortable position. The perspective uh, that he's bringing forward and positive all the way through here is coming from a very tough place. And when you have that experience uh, going on, you can begin to understand a little bit how perspective not, is not to be set so much from the exterior of life. The strongest perspectives of your life are set by the interior of your life. And that means that there's always going to be a larger goal. In this particular book, I'm going to read a chunk of it out of Philippians 3, 7 through 11 from the Living Bible to start with. Paul has already addressed servanthood. He's addressed humility in Philippians 2. And this is known as a book of joy. If you really want to know the source of joy, it's humility, humbleness. If you want to know the source of maturity, it's humility, it's humbleness. If you want to know the source of effective servanthood, it's humility, it's, it's humbleness. If you want to know the, the source of great relationships, it's humility, it's, it's humbleness. Because these are the things that control our perspective. A humble perspective is always closer to God than the prideful or the unaware. And this is the larger goal. Paul brings it out best. And let me read to you a bit of it. But all these things that I once thought were very worthwhile. What's he talking about? He's talking about the goals most of us chase down. He's saying, I thought all these things were worthwhile. I thought like this was going to be good. This is worth my life. It's worth an effort. It's worth my energy, my planning, my strategies to get to that goal. I'm not arguing with those goals. 
I'm saying there's a larger goal. And Paul is saying there's a larger goal. And now he says, those things I once thought very worthwhile, now I've thrown them all away. Position, power, fame, recognition, achievement. He had all the rise above the crowd things that he could pull forward. And he just says, I've thrown them all away so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ. The gain is a word as goal-setting word. It's a goal-achieving word. The gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have put aside all else. He's saying there's no competitors in my life on this. I put everything aside. I've let it go. Just before this, in the first six verses of this chapter, he is laying out his, you could say, his qualifications to be noticed. And he's saying this is all junk. In fact, he's called it dung, which there's other names for. He said it's just worthless. He goes on and he says, I put it aside, counting it worth less than nothing in order that I can have Christ and become one with him, no longer counting on being saved by being good enough or by obeying God's laws, but by trusting Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, counting on Christ alone. Do you see how that's such a humble position to take? He's saying, I have to dismiss everything I used to put my value, my righteousness, the qualifications of my life, I used to put everything on those things. He's saying, I had to abandon all of that. I had to let it go. I had to count that as worthless, simply that I would be counting on Christ alone. Now I have given up everything else. I have found it, listen to this, to be the only way to really know Christ. Big statement. And to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again. And to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So whatever it takes, and this is a phrase I will come back to, catch this phrase, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. He's saying, I was dead before. All that stuff that everybody else would put value on was my death sentence. All the stuff. It's my death sentence. He's saying, I now, because of depending wholly on Christ alone, I'm going to be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. There's different kinds of resurrection power coming from the same source. God can resurrect anything in your life where he finds humility, that ability to lay aside the things that are attached to our pride and is our list. Well, here's my list. Here's who my dad was. Here's who my grandpa was. Here's who my great-grandpa was. If that's your list, it's a pride-based list. None of that matters. Here's my achievements. Here's what I've got. Here's my measurement of value today as I look at what I have achieved. Look at the influence that I've garnered. Look at this. He's saying all that junk was keeping me dead. 
I am now alive, and I will be one who lives in the fresh, I love that word, newness of life. Self-contentment is an enemy of larger goals. When we are self-content with our lists, when we look at our life and we say, boy, this is a good list, and look, it's even growing, and you work with all your energies to continue to grow that list, there's one day when you begin to realize that list is actually robbing from you the life that you could have. This is called the joy letter perspective, and Paul's attacking things at the roots of destroying joy. And he's saying, if you hang on to this stuff, you continue to hang on to death. Sometimes we use the work of the Lord Jesus for us as though it could thrust away the necessity of the Holy Spirit's work in us. This was a statement from Spurgeon, great preacher. 150 years ago. He got it right exactly. See, this is what happens. It's called sort of this sloppy idea of grace. It's a lazy form. It's a lazy form. It's, that, it's this idea that, that the work of the Lord Jesus for us, it gives me the permission to sit back and not do anything with what I've received. Holy living doesn't really matter because I have grace. That's really sloppy, and it's not scriptural. Grace is affirmed by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Christ did his work for us on the cross. The Holy Spirit does his work in us to make us like Christ, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, temperance, and faith. So the Holy Spirit's work in you as a Christian now is ongoing every day. He's to be working in you. And the moment you sit back and you just are going to rest on achievements or some kind of sloppy form of approach to the gift of grace in your life, you are in a dangerous position with God. You yourself are challenging your original commitment to the work of Christ. Because the work of Christ must be followed immediately by the work of the Spirit in us, convicting us, encouraging us, challenging us, picking us up, carrying us on, doing whatever is necessary for us to continue to grow and move forward. Both of the works are necessary. It's a complete package. The work of Jesus for us, the work of the Spirit in us. Look at this scripture again that follows what we've just read. Not that I've obtained all, already obtained all this, Paul says, or have already arrived at my goal. There's the word. He's, here's what he's saying. He's looking back and he's saying, I haven't really obtained all this. He's saying, I am in the process. The Holy Spirit is working in me. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So what the work of Christ does is set you up so that the Holy Spirit can work with you with all of your flaws and take you down a road of growth where he is putting Christ's nature in bit by bit by bit by bit. You're getting better all the time. 
And guess what is necessary at the foundation of that process of the work of the Holy Spirit? It's the same thing as what's required at the work of Jesus for you. Humbleness. Humility. There's always larger goals. But they are no larger goals that exist for the Christian outside of beginning points, a foundation of humility or humbleness. That's why it's so difficult for us to make choices. Because when we struggle with yielding control or our pride is in charge of our lives, it looks and feels completely different. It's a false form of growth. It doesn't actually produce the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't actually produce the kind of good stuff. And it doesn't last is the most important thing. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, brothers and sisters. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Now, before he got there, he's saying, I know I have fallen short. I'm not God at all. I'm in process. There's the humility. Some people just want to start with forgetting what lies behind. And they treat the scripture as something that says, well, you just forget it all. No, you don't just forget it all. You always remember, the scriptures tell us, the rock from which you were hewn, the pit out of which you were dug. You remember what Jesus has done for you. You remember how far he has lifted you up and how far he had to reach down to get you. You remember how you needed Christ. There's a humility in remembering how far we were from Christ. And in that humility... That stabilizes your growth so pride can't come in and then tree become the roots of your growth because you always remember your starting point. He's talking about, he's talking about forgetting this list that you had listed earlier in verse 1 to 6. He's saying, I forget the list. I'm forgetting what's behind me that way. That false stuff. The prideful stuff. Say, I just forget that. And then he goes on with it and he says, and straining toward what is ahead. That's a process of growth. I press on toward the goal. What's his goal? What's the larger goal? What's the larger goal? Well, we've already got two of them. The first is, so whatever it takes, I will be one of those who lives in the fresh newness of life, of those who are alive from the dead. First goal. Second goal. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's saying, when I get home, when I'm in heaven, when the job is done, when I've finished the work, I want the prize he's got for me. He says, my life is being measured every day in the balances of my response to the challenge of God to live a life that comes out of humility because of what I've received from Christ and pay attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in me to produce the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead, and to, for me to fight the battle all the way through, no matter how hard or how difficult, because there is a prize awaiting. Now we're going to switch to a story in the Old Testament and talk more about this. It's a great story. Um, I'm going to read a good chunk of it, follow along. Now Naaman 
was commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is Syria. You will know it as modern Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So this is a high general within the government of this king. And this, this king had had great victories because of this guy's military prowess and leadership. And he was very favored. He would have been just right at the right hand of the king. And this guy's valiant, but he ends up, he's got leprosy. Now let's understand leprosy in the Old Testament. It was always viewed as a condition like sin. It just constantly was gnawing away, taking away the nerve endings, the feeling. It was constantly just putting your body back into disease or health or dis-ease or in, in a state where the function was being inhibited. It was an awful disease. And it was kind of disease that it would uh, continue to get passed on very easily in many cases. And so he's kind of being leprosy. He's got all this fame, but the leprosy puts him on the outside. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So a captive girl working for the wife of Naaman says, there's somebody in Israel. I could heal him. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Let me give you a numerical value. Upwards of 10 million Canadian dollars. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Can you imagine being the king and getting this? Elisha is the one that's about it. And you get a king and you get this? This is like pressure upon pressure. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? He thought he was pushing for war. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, My father, I'm sorry, and, and I thought that he would surely come out, and, out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went after him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? You see the humility here? You're going to see with three men here different trajectories. You've got Elisha, who's got the humility to not be the star. He didn't go to the palace to make a big show. He wasn't about making a big show. 
He didn't care if he would have been noticed. In fact, what he does is he's in his house. Naaman and his entourage are outside with $10 million. And he sends out his slave or his servant. And his servant goes out and he gives instructions to Naaman about what he needs to do. To be cleansed of leprosy, the very worst thing you could have in those days. And his response is anger and then rage because it didn't meet his expectations. His expectations were that Elisha would come out and say, oh, Naaman, I'm so glad that you are here. What a great man of Syria you are. I have heard of your reputation. I know what kind of man you really are. He didn't make him center stage at all. In fact, he brought him off the stage and he said, here's the instructions. Go wash seven times in the Jordan, a river of Israel. Servants who are wise said, if he had asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it, right? And he said, yeah. So then he humbled himself. How close do we get to not getting the larger goals? He could have went home all the way back to Damascus. And he would still have leprosy, but he would have his pride. I did not wash in the dirty water of the Jordan. And you say, well, why would somebody make a big deal out of that? Look, it's easy to climb the ladder of pride. It's hard to come down the ladder of pride. Have you found that in a fight with your spouse? Have you found that where you get entrenched? It's so easy to climb the ladder of pride. It's really hard to move back down those rungs. But he's dealing with God now. And God doesn't play games around pride. Not at all. He'll have nothing to do with it. He says, in fact, back in Philippians, the portion we read, he says, I can't partner with you because of pride. So name has got to come down. He does. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He would never have known that if he had walked off in his rage that his pride core had stimulated. In his reaction, it didn't fit my expectations or what I wanted. No, he says, Now I know. There is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept the gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Ten million dollars. I'm not going to accept a thing. What's going on here? Humility always places you second and God first. Not just in words. But in practice. And here he has it. The great advantage, 10 million. That is a great number on a great list. And what does he do with it? 
He says, surely as I serve God, I'm not taking anything. Why? Why, 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 Elijah? Elijah, this knew that, Elijah knew that this was simply the journey of God in this man's life, and God wanted this man's heart free from the corruptness that can come. When you think you can buy something, when you think that what you do or what you have somehow favors you in the eyes of God. So he took nothing. And Naaman goes home knowing there's one true God, and he goes home knowing there is genuine people of faith that aren't in it for themselves. To be noticed or be the center or to be somewhere up the ladder with a list that Paul himself rejected. Humble. Ah, but something else transpires in this story that's really ugly. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Make, this is interesting. He says, what Naaman's doing here, he's saying, let me take back some dirt here. I'm going to build a different kind of altar. It's not going to be a golden altar that we have there to these false gods. He's saying, I'll never, ever serve another god. When did this come? After Elisha had kept it clean, had kept it where it was God. So he says, there's never going to be another God that I will serve. But he's saying, give me this load of dirt from here. That's what I want to take back. And he, then he says, but the, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, the king, enters the temple of Rimon, the false god, to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha says, go in peace. Your heart's there, buddy. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as, <clears throat> excuse me, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Now here's another man. Servant of Elisha. So close so close, had seen remarkable things. And what does he do? He sees an opportunity. To, to do what? Another rung on the ladder. See, he was living for a list. So he runs after him and gets something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, big lie. 
Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags and with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house and he sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks or herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous, it had become as white as snow. The inner will always show up in the outer. And when the inner does not change, when it does not become humble before God, if it is not in processes of healthy change, then what will happen is the exterior will show it. The relationships will take their shots that they don't need to take. But behind that is a lack of humility and humbleness because pride has got you in reaction and you don't, aren't going to take the best. Or maybe you're like Gehazi and, and, and you're just inside driven down that list. And when you grab the opportunity, it's really hard not to. And I will tell you, we need to, as Christians, understand that though Christ has done his work for us, the Holy Spirit must do his work in us. And he's constantly doing that. There's always larger goals. So the larger goals are inner goals for you. Not what you will set exterior goals where, you know, this year I want to achieve this economically or health-wise or weight-wise or this is what I want to achieve in the business-wise. This is what I want to achieve this year when it comes to church-wise or ministry-wise. This is what I want to achieve. These are all exterior goals. It's the interior goals that are the largest goals that you will ever set. And here's the funny thing. You cannot set a goal to be humble. The moment you think you can humble yourself in the way that says that, you know, you can just make it a goal and I'll achieve this by the end of next week. You actually have fed pride. So what are we in a catch 22 here? No, not really. Humbleness comes when we are willing to surrender the lists that we build our value in our eyes and other people's eyes, and we lean into that to govern and be the perspective that is set for us on ourselves, on what we do. When we let the Holy Spirit work in us to challenge the lists and to say, surrender this. 
That's where humbleness is built or not. That's when you're choosing. These are hard choices, though. They're certainly hard in my life. When we have to make those kinds of choices. But it's such a simple opportunity. Gehazi already had leprosy in his heart. It just finally showed up on the skin. So today, if you've considered goal setting only in the exterior sense, what do I need to achieve yet? Because this goal controls, and you might even be a, an if and when goal setter. If I achieve that goal, that's when I will be able and free to serve the Lord better. Do you see in Paul's story and Elijah's story, this doesn't fit? No. You serve the Lord now. You make everything subservient to him. Everything external, you will do the same things. You're still going to have a goal for a family. You're going to have a goal for a, a, a wife, a husband. You're going to have a goal, economic goals. You're going to have professional goals. That's not, those are not the issue. It's what taints those goals. The perspective on every one of those things is controlled by the inner goals. What is your goal? Here. To be like Christ to know the power of his resurrection and to live in the newness of life that the power of the resurrection provides for you to actually live in a fresh newness all of the time. Fresh and new. You can live that in your relationships. You can live it in every part of your life. And you say, well, don't I get it first? Like, don't I, isn't it out here? No, no. It's all generated out of here. What's your goal in here? Paul's was, this list is out. Here's what's in. And with that, I just remind you of a few scriptures that we have already read. Not that I've already attained all this, but have, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is all goal language. It's all in inner Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind that list, that list, and straining toward what is ahead. What is ahead? A life lived in the power of the resurrection, one that is fresh and new. Where he says, so whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. So I press on toward the goal to win the prize. At the end, the prize is the end. It's not Gehazi chasing down Naaman and saying, hey, my master says it's okay. No, you know, we often, well, Jesus said, or Jesus, you be careful. My goal going forward into this year is an ongoing goal that just says, God, 
the leprosy here, keep cleansing and healing. That sin, keep me moving forward against it. Holy Spirit, give me the power to continue to walk out the great grace of God and to take the holy life seriously because it's the holy life that proves the authenticity of the work of Christ for me. The Holy Spirit is working in your life maybe even this morning. And he might be touching you in a way that he hasn't touched you before through this. Where you're viewing something in your heart that is still list-driven outside, it's exterior, and that other controls the interior. And I'm saying you're kidding yourself because it's whatever's interior controls your exterior goals. It puts the color on it. It's either good or bad because of what your heart is. So today as believers, I want to encourage you, maybe especially because of the times that we live in, is to go after the large goals. There's always a larger goal. There's always more in here that I can stay away from the list and I can let the Holy Spirit do in my life with, with his fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, temperance, faith. There's always a larger goal. There's always a larger goal for that in your relationship. There's going to be a larger goal for that in just life, period. And he wants you to live that life. That power is available for you to build new lists that are built through the Holy Spirit's activity and work in your life. Do not be what could have been for Naaman. Could have killed his future right there with his reaction and anger. Somebody was able to talk sense into him. And he received the best God had. Don't be like Gehazi who is so driven by a list that the exterior is the only perspective you've got to measure your life. Because that's not how God's going to measure your life. He's measuring here. And that's where it's measured. And that's where we want to be. So that God can do his full work in us and through us. Would you stand with me, please? There is always a larger goal. Always. Problem is, for most of us, our life has been driven by larger goals in the exterior. And God's got the biggest goals for you in the interior. Let's take a moment of reflection on that. What might that be? Here's what I do know. For you to have larger goals on the interior, I want to love more. I want the Holy Spirit to drive that up. I need to have this for other people more. I'm, I'm not, not there. I don't have enough joy. It's... It's really, it's like it's water in the hand most days. Peace is really, really far from me. I, I, I feel like I get it in a moment and then it's like, it's gone. You want to have larger goals? Have larger goals for love, joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering. 
have larger goals for that. And say, God, I want larger goals in patience. And God, I want larger goals in gentleness. I don't want to be in reaction. I don't want to be just that angry, whether it's a stiff or inside or outside kind of anger. I just don't want to be there. All of these fruit of the Spirit are the larger goals. This is the life of the resurrection power, the fresh new life, and only the Holy Spirit can do it. So what does it require from you? Surrender it. Surrender is the action. Humility is the foundation, as I said earlier, of all maturity. Every good thing you'll grow in your life starts from humility. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're coaching a hockey team. I don't care if you're uh, driving a business. Everything you do is driven out of humility. Then God gets honored. Gentleness, meekness. Meekness is strength held for the right time. The right moment. It's under reins. It's ready. But it's under control. Temperance. It's an old English word. All it basically means is that kind of thing where you're not going to just go too high or too far. You're not going to give control of other things to your life. And finally, self-control. Okay, that's a lot to take today. But it's actually quite simple. So Christ has saved you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is committed to working inside of you for the rest of your days to produce his own fruit. And it will take surrender in your part to the Holy Spirit's work when he pushes these buttons and any one of those fruit I just listed, and he's saying, you know, you're falling short here, love, in this relationship. You need to upgrade it here. This is a time you need upgraded love. You have a choice. I guarantee you what it'll require though. Not this. It's gonna require this. And that's hard. And that is hard. And that is hard. Father, as we take a look at the inside and recognize that's where your gaze is. I pray that Lord that this truth that we've looked at today and seen in the life of Naaman, Gehazi, and Elijah. Lord, as we look at this truth and we apply it to our life, when we realize what Christ has done for us so that the Holy Spirit can reproduce Christ in us, I pray that we will start fresh in surrender because the resurrection power is there to give us a fresh new life, fresh new starts all of the time by his own energy and power. All we need to do, Lord, is to truly surrender these things when you are prompting our heart and saying, no, no, you're in reaction. No, 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 this isn't good. You're out of self-control. No, no, you've got to grow here. You're hurting this person. You're hurting what I want to do. Your greed has just in, stepped into what I was trying to do in this person's life. And we need to make those adjustments. It's hard, Lord. You know it. 
You're the only perfect one in humility. And I pray that through our surrender, we will learn the power of humbling ourselves before our God so that he might continue to work in us and effectively through us. If you're here today or watching online and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's the same process for you. You just have to humble yourself, receive Christ as your Savior for the sins that have so been a part of every human person's life. And I just ask that you would make a decision based on the simplicity of what's stirring in your heart right now. If there's something stirring in your heart towards Christ right now, you can make a decision for Christ of surrender. You will have to climb down some rungs. You have to admit, I'm a sinner. You have to admit you can't climb out of the pit of sin. You have to admit that if there's any future that is great with God in eternity and even on this planet, it will be rooted within you climbing down and receiving Christ because it's on the inward that he will come. And then he's going to work on the inward that finally will show up in all of the exterior goals and things that we live out every day. So if you want to receive Jesus Christ, simple prayer, you can pray in the quietness of your heart, Jesus Christ, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. Jesus, I acknowledge I can't climb out of my own sin. I'm not good enough, never can be. I acknowledge, Lord, that I need to receive from you grace and mercy. I ask humbly. I acknowledge I need it. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my CEO, my boss, my Lord. If you just prayed that prayer, you just received the Holy Spirit into your life. And he's going to be working now in your life. You've received what Christ has done for you, which is salvation. Now the Holy Spirit is going to work that out in your heart and in your life. Father, bless this congregation. Bless all those, Lord, that have heard this word. And may it be a word that digs deep in us and makes us truly stronger. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you find this program helpful or would like to learn more, please give us a call, 780-539-0572 or email mail at peopleschurchgp.com.